Welcome to the Social Enterprise Podcast. Hi, I'm Rupert Schofield, President and CEO of Finca International. Today, my guest is the CEO of Kunda Digital. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Hi, Rupert, and uh, and hi, everybody who's listening. It's Andy Milne here, based in Cape Town, South Africa, and as, as Rupert mentioned, uh, CEO of Kunda. Thanks, Andrew. So what I'd like to do is um, have you explain uh, to us what your journey has been. How did you come to the place you are now? And then towards the end, we'll probably talk about where you see you and your company going in the future. But I think it would be very interesting for our listeners to hear from you, like, uh, where did uh, this idea come from? Where did your passion for this type of work come from? And uh, how did you kind of climb your way to the point where you are now, which I would, I would say from what I understand, a, a very successful company that's uh, really doing a lot of good in the word, world. And I'm sure we're gonna wanna hear much more from you about that. Absolutely. Uh, maybe to, you know, Rupert, to start with a little bit of sort of career background. Um, I, I've been in um, technology services for over 22 years. This is my fourth startup. Uh, two, the previous two, um, we, we successfully sold. Um, and throughout my career, I've always been involved in startups at a product operations and commercial level. Um, the first, uh, and we've, I've, where I've worked in, in multiple industries, the common theme has always been that we've taken specialized services and wrapped technology around them to reach the masses. So our first business was more in the health and wellness space before mobile phones existed. So it was using the internet and really applying how you can apply specialized um, services to improve the healthcare of, of populations, working closely with insurance companies and companies. Uh, we launched that business in South Africa and then successfully launched it in the, in the US under the Virgin brand, because Virgin Group bought us. Uh, and that's, we launched it um, under the Virgin Health Miles brand in the US, and it's now currently operating as Virgin Pulse. Um, I then, from staying with Virgin after they bought us for about five years, launched one of Africa's first telemedicine business, businesses uh, that was with mobile phones at that stage. And really the premise there was, how do we give all Africans access to doctors, even if they can't see them? So built out Hello Doctor as a business. We launched it in seven African markets, as well as Indonesia uh, and MMI. Holdings, uh, South Africa's third largest insurer, bought us. Uh, again, I stayed with the business for about five years and then moved to Zona, uh, the sort of Zambian Malawi's um, payments business. And that was my first sort of scale up business outside of being a startup. Um, ran operations there for a number of years where I met my two partners, uh, Mornay and Sam. And we left Zona around the same time. 
And as we'd worked together, um, we had common interests in really trying to solve liquidity. And, and Zona was a great uh, grounding for us because we sort of ran a very successful agent network in both Zambia and Malawi. And we'd learned through that experience the value of having a, a highly liquid uh, distribution network. Uh, so when Mornay, Sam and I were leaving, uh, Sam had built, he was he used to be the uh, MD of Tigo Cash in the DRC. And whilst he was in the DRC, he had built out a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace to, to solve liquidity at both agent and customer level. Um, we took that as our first sort of MVP, I suppose, and started to look at the market and say, how do we solve liquidity um, for agents and, and potentially informal retailers and consumers over time? But we kind of started the business with the premise that said, no one had effectively solved agent liquidity in mobile money. Um, and that was the sort of, that was the, the creation of Kunda, the three of us looking at the market, seeing how we could design a product that was quite unique to enter the market solving liquidity for one user segment with the view that we'll add different use cases uh, to, to solve airtime liquidity, to build payment liquidity, not just mobile money liquidity, and then to really step it up from agents into informal retailers, because what we do know working with a lot of the agents in the market doing digital transactions, they all have their own little mom and pop shops or, sh or shops, and they don't just have a float liquidity challenge, they have a working capital um, liquidity challenge as well. So we'd always had the sort of view that by starting with solving um, e-money or float um, liquidity challenges, it will lead and allow us to build a bit of a borrower's profile, a digital borrower's, borrower's profile, to be able to then address their physical cash constraints as well. And that's that's how Kunda started. We started in 2018, March 2018, um, uh, secured our first client in Tanzania in 2019. Um, yeah, and it's just, you know, we've managed to launch three products in Tanzania with M-Pesa and busy rolling out. We, we've launched in Pakistan as well with a partner and uh, busy with rollouts in seven other African markets at this point in time. That's wonderful, Andrew. Let me, let's just pause a moment while uh, we try to maybe demystify this whole uh, importance of liquidity and, and describe what a float is and so forth in this context. And I, I, I'll give a tiny bit of background from my own experience when I kind of experienced firsthand why this is all so important. And I don't know, have you worked at all in Latin America, Andrew? No, that's that's what the one I've, we've done a lot in Africa and, and Asia, but we, we ha I haven't had any opportunities yet to, to work in Latin. Okay, well, I just bring it up because let me just describe my first experience with this problem. I was in Guatemala and Finca Guatemala, our microfinance company, uh, has Guatemala in our network. And um, <clears throat> Guatemala had hooked up with a agent network, which are basically people who 
who provide liquidity to uh, people who are working with a microfinance company, borrowing money or repaying money, conducting different transactions, cash transactions. And I was in a little village in a beautiful little town uh, on Lake Atitlan, which is a, a lake in the center of Guatemala and it's ringed by vol volcanoes, very picturesque. And many of the indigenous women there produce handicrafts and they do a pretty vigorous market with tourists, especially. And um, I was meeting with this group and talking to them about their uh, challenges and their successes and so forth. And I knew they had uh, an arrangement with our regional office there in the town of uh, Sololá, it was called. And we had a branch of our bank there that they transacted with, but they also uh, transacted with an agent who was very close to where their community was. So they didn't have to go all the way into Sololá, which was several kilometers. They could just do transact, or so I thought, with this agent. But then they kind of surprised me because I, I, you know, I was talking about how wonderful this must be. And this woman said, well, yeah, there's one small problem, Rupert. Every time we go there, the agent has no money to transact. And not only do they have no money to disperse Finca loans to us, but we cannot even repay those agents, repay our loans through the agent because they don't have uh, the, the, what they call the float. And I think here, Andrew, it might be good for you to chime in because I'm sure you, uh, you can relate, I'm, I would assume, totally to the problem I'm describing because I think that is basically a big part of the problem you address, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in, any, in, in any agency banking or mobile money environment where you have agent networks doing the cash in, cash outs and doing digital transactions like bill payments or airtime top ups, the, the, the agent themselves, you know, they have to have enough e-float to do certain transactions like uh, airtime top up with for a customer or paying electricity, paying bills, et cetera. That, that transaction when a customer comes to them can only work in the system when the agent has enough float. So let me contextualize the challenge that is faced by most agents is they don't have a month's worth of float that they can commit to that's enough value to see through all transactions. So you imagine they start work as a Wednesday, they need to decide of my 20 or $30, do I put 15 of it to float for the day? Um, because I, I think I'm going to have a busy day. And do I, it's, it might also be the day where they have to buy certain types of goods for their shop. So they need to allocate some of that for cash. And then they've also got to think, how many cash outs am I going to have to do today? Because that requires physical cash. So it's a, it's a balancing act for these agents who have limited working capital capability to decide at a given point in time, how much float do I buy in the morning? 
and most most environments you can buy from a bank you go to a bank you pay twenty dollars you get twenty dollars of e-money or float given to you on your wallet um, you can do it at a super agent and the more rural you go the less rebalancing points are naturally going to be available. So typically what you see in a, during the day is I start the day as an agent and I put a put float, I put I, I invest in in float um, by buying it from the provider or um, rebalancing it's often called. And then at the same time I've got to have enough physical cash for the types of cash transactions that I need to do. During the course of that day, the agent might have underestimated how many cash-ins or, or bill payments or airtime top-ups he has to do. And that $20, if that's what he invested in the morning, steadily goes down um, till the point that you might only have $2 of float left. And if a customer comes with a $5 transaction at that point in time, the transaction fails on his system. And without any uh, float financing available to him in real time, the transaction fails, he has to turn the customer away. And then he's got a, the agent's got a decision to make, which is, do I shut my shop, jump in a bus or on, onto a bicycle and go to the nearest rebalancing point to buy more float? Or do I just start turning customers away and focus on my core business, which is my shop, until, until such time that I can get to a rebalancing point either in the evening or the next day? So a lot of the challenges with liquidity that we've experienced in pretty much every market is the fact that it's a complete balancing act for agents to um, guesstimate how much float they need versus physical cash. And at certain points in time during the day, during the week, they have different float requirements. And if they run out, they have to turn customers away. And we, we actually launched our first product being a a float overdraft product to solve the electronic float issue because that's been the biggest issue that agents have experienced up until now um, and that's the that's the way we enter markets as we launch with an, an agent overdraft product to solve e-float shortages and then over time as we build a profile on that on that agent we then add in the working capital facility product uh, which gives him access to physical cash when he needs it yeah. So, and, Andrew, I think it's, I think anyway, uh, I don't want to second guess, guess our audience, but I assume that it's pretty easy for uh, someone to understand how an agent needs to have cash on hand in the event that a uh, customer is going to come and ask for cash. That's pretty easy to understand how important it is to have the cash on hand. But maybe it's a little more esoteric or complicated or counterintuitive or whatever. Why does an agent, in order to accept a repayment say of a loan why is it so important for that agent to have what you describe as a float with the bank that is eventually gonna receive the money why why is that so important yeah i mean if you if you just think of it as there's very few organizations that will 
bankroller agent and and assume that the cash they've collected will eventually end up in their in their bank account. So, you know, if you've got a hundred thousand agents and you didn't have them rebalance prior to doing transactions with electronic float, um, the the re, the the loss of the, the loss of that physical cash would be quite high. So, you know, the impezas of the world, so the mobile money operators uh, and any type of uh, bill payment provider or agency banking provider sets up their system so that if you want to be an agent, you have to invest physical cash into float to be able to do transactions. If they didn't do that, the risk of getting that cash um, would be lost in the system. Um, and the, the viability of running uh, mobile money or bill payment agent networks as almost human ATMs would be would be prohibitive to the to to being able to operate as a business. Right. So it's, so it's really important that the 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 modus operandi, if you like, of running agent networks is the agent themselves has to invest or rebalance float at the beginning. They have to have float in their wallet to be able to service a customer to do a cash-in, airtime top-up, or a bill payment. Right, because uh, if I can put it maybe in a different term, um, basically that agent, if, if you did not have this system of the float, the agent could in theory say, oh, I never got that money, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I never, that guy says he pay, he paid me this money that I was supposed to deliver to you, the bank, but, uh, he actually didn't, or, or actually maybe I even did misuse it once it was paid in and it never did get to the bank, but it's kind yeah. of like, a, it's a backup guarantee, I guess, to eliminate the the risk right is that yeah. basically the idea okay yeah absolutely thank um, you so much for that yeah listen let's let's back up a little bit and i i'd be really i think our uh, listeners would be very interested because andrew this is uh i mean okay you know the world is divided between digitally savvy people and not so digitally savvy kind of like me and you know you being the digitally savvy part of the world and me being the one that has to go to his son when something is mundane as oh nobody can hear me on the zoom call john can you please bail me out here you know because he's like you know, he, he's born into that generation that has grown up with mobile phones and laptops and everything digital. That's how he and his mates uh, decide how they're going to cover the costs of a party or something like that through some app on their mobile phones. And it's very basic, but it's not it's not a path everyone chooses some people would be kind of kind of scared by the technology or, or just plain think wow this is uh there's going to be other people that i'm going to spend a ton of time trying to explain this this app to and why it's so critical to your business but how how did did you come to this 
a step at a time or did you kind of always think one day I'm going to be the head of a big successful fintech that's working all over the world? I'm being facetious. I don't, I strongly doubt if you would tell me that's, that was your process. (laughs) No, I mean, we, as a, as three partners, when we started the business, we, we felt, we felt we, we had the, the skills. I'm a generalist, um, you know, always been involved in commercials, the commercial side of thing. I've, I've done startups before. Uh, Sam is a product specialist in the mobile money space and is our sort of, you know, he heads up our R&D, he designs the products, he works with the products, with the partners and the users. And then on with Mornay on the data insights and the credit scoring side, we've got a deep uh, fintech data scientist running our data team. So we, 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 we were very fortunate and we had an aligned vision of trying to build out a, a, a prudent sort of well-structured business that could solve liquidity in multiple forms. Um, so we had that aligned vision as a team of, A, we liked working together. We liked the combination of skills that came together. Um, and our product approach and, and wanting to solve that problem of, of liquidity and doing it systematically, were, we were very, very aligned on. Um, and to be honest, when we first started the business, we were, we were super lucky because we, we really wanted to do, do it quite prudently um, and give the products time. Um, I'm a great believer in, in the products always need time to be tested, um, to be, um, you know, it's, they're, they're never going to be right first time around. So you've got to find the way of creating time. And we are very fortunate with the thinker, with thinkers as, as one client, Lashego Group as another client, where we started life with a small consultancy side to our business to be able to bootstrap it. Because our our goal as partners were, let's do this properly. It's going to need time, but let's prove one market with multiple products to show ourselves that we actually have a really good opportunity to create an interesting business here. Um, and. To, to create that time for ourselves, we, we did these, we sort of, in the first year, we did 12, 50% of our time was consulting. And then every year for the first three years, we reduced it as, you know, our product revenue started to improve. So, you know, we never set out, we kind of even, to be honest, the, the, the interesting thing is we gave ourselves a 12 month contract with each other um, and set some themes um, in place to be able to see if we could actually create a business or not. So there was no, we didn't go into it thinking we're going to create this massive fintech that's going to work in sort of eight to nine countries in the, in the next three to four years. We, we actually started it by saying, I think we've got a good idea of how we could solve liquidity, but we never knew. So we, we looked at each other and said, because we've got the consulting side to the business, let's give ourselves a year. And at the end of the 12 months, we either are 100% into this, or we haven't made it work and we've got to move on. So, and we've just been, you know, we've been fortunate. We've had some amazing partners, not just distribution partners like Mpesa and Airtel Money, and now OneLoad in Pakistan, but, you know, I think as our main bank partner, they've been fantastic supporters of the product. 
Um, and we've it, we've really just learned a lot and iterated and developed the product and perfected the product with our partners to the point now that we're we're in this sort of operationally live in two countries and about to sort of go into another six countries over the next 12 months. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, so many of the people that I've had on this show, as I call it, and I've had about, I'm coming on 50 of them, actually. I was looking at my my link the other day uh, just to check in on some of the earlier ones I did and uh, podcasts, that is. And uh, many of the startup people I talked to, they ended up, they actually met as undergraduates or graduate students at MIT or Stanford or Harvard or wherever or somewhere, or maybe Cape Town even. Um, how about you guys? How did you find your mates? How did you guys find each other? Yeah, great question. I mean, so so Morna and I were work. I joined Zona. Morna was already the head of data science there in credit scoring. So um, we worked very closely together for for sort of um, just over a year. Um, he was almost an internal service provider to me and the teams that I was managing. Um, and then we were looking in Zona. We were looking to uh, launch in the DRC and met Sam who at that stage was the MD of Tigo Cash, uh, and convinced him to join Zona. Um, so Sam Mornay and myself had about a six-month overlap of working very closely together in, in Zona as, as colleagues. Um, and then over a period of about nine months between the three of us, uh, then moved on from Zona. And at that stage, Sam had planted the seed um, with me to look at seeing how we could commercialize the liquidity solution that he had built in, in the DRC. So there was, there was a bit of fortune, for, you know, it was a little bit fortunate that we did come together, um, but because we had worked together in a previous business and had sort of similar values and a vision of trying to do something different, um, that brought us together and we ended up all leaving Zona roughly around the same time. Uh, and you know, we just made, got approached by Lashego initially to help them with their digital strategy, which then, as I said, allowed us to sort of tinker and build out the, the liquidity solution to what it is today. Yeah, so that's, um, that, thank you. Thank you for that uh, story. That's charming. And um, getting, getting back to the actual... Um, uh, innovation that you guys came up with, it almost seems like, at least to someone like me, how, how come this uh, thing, which now in hindsight seems so obvious, well, yes, of course you have to solve these different liquidity problems. Otherwise, you know, you can't work with an agent network or everything. This would not work. How come you guys hit on this thing, but has had such tremendous success and impact on what was during my years, uh, this was just a gigantic problem. And it, and it sabotaged pretty much every effort to set up some kind of agent network. Uh, but you guys came up with this. 
but did were there a number of other people working in parallel and you know it was kind of like a race to who's going to get to the finish line first <laughs> or were you guys yeah. like so far ahead of everybody in your thinking and your uh, you know the detail work that we know is enormous in something like this yeah it's i mean it's a great question i mean we've we've our platform now and i'll, I'll talk a little bit, bit about how we how we got there is we, we weren't the first trying to solve uh, float liquidity at, a, at an agent level. Um, and there's there's a number of competitors. Um, and because we weren't the first, we kind of understood what competitors were doing so we could take a, a different approach to it. Um, so, so where our big belief is in all of our products actually, because we're now sitting with um, six different products off the platform, is we, we really wanted to specialize in productive liquidity solutions. Um, so making sure that whatever we launched into a market funded a transaction um, where a lot of providers just fuel working capital as a replacement to the agent's investment. So all of our competitors when we were launching um, would provide a term loan as float. So when the agent takes it, they get the float, but it can be used for anything, um, including a P2P, which then becomes a cash out and it, it solves physical cash issues, not electronic cash issues, because it typically leaks out of the system. So looking at that, we then said, well, let's fund customer transactions in real times with the agents and build a platform that does that in an instantaneous way. So I'll, I'll give you an example, is that an agent in, in Tanzania starts the day with $30 of float. It's a very, very busy day of cash-ins. So his electronic float is going down constantly. By two in the afternoon, he's only got $3 of float left and a customer comes in for a $10 cash-in. That, that transaction fails on the M-Pesa system. And in real time now, the M-Pesa agent gets a notification to say, would you like to access your over overdraft? Presses one on his phone and then behind the scenes, our APIs, because we're just purely a B2B business. It's, it, we're using the M-Pesa front end and all of our partners front ends for these transactions because that's also very, very important is it has to be completely frictionless for the agent because if, it, if they have to leave the platform they're working on, they'll never use the liquidity solution. So it can't be a separate app and a separate process. It's got to be in the flows of doing a customer transaction. Uh, and then what our APIs do is they'll check, does the um, agent qualify for a limit? Have they registered? Are they in good standing? Does he still have enough balance left? All of those things happen in, in nanoseconds. And then when it's all affirmative, we don't put the agent might have a, a limit of $200, but we never give that float to him or her. What we do is, is we'll look at the balance of the transaction of the float required to complete the customer transaction and just send that to them. So in this example I'm using where customer wants to do a $10 cash in, the agent's got three, we just send seven to the agent to complete the customer transaction so he never turns a customer away, which is crucial. And everything I've just described to you happens in nanoseconds. And we were the only provider at solving agent liquidity 
that decided to go the route of transaction-based funding rather than a lump sum which can be leaked out of the system. Um, and to this day, that we're the only provider doing um, transaction-based overdraft float financing. Um, and what's quite interesting as well is the way we priced it and the approach we took to working with partners differentiated ourselves. So because we're only funding customer transactions and we're pooling float um, for our bank partners, um, is we and, and there's an auto strike on the system. So anytime an agent has a, a float positive transaction, which can be a cash out, so his float goes up, if he's in negative balance in our system, we take that money back immediately. So, and um, don't forget, as I mentioned at the beginning, is you've got agents that will do cash-ins and then the very next customer could be a cash-out. Um, if he's in negative balance with us and the cash-out happens, we take our money back immediately. So what we're actually seeing, which is fascinating, is we, in Tanzania, for example, which is our largest market, we do... 35 to 40,000 disbursements a day, and over 91% of them are paid back by nine o'clock at night. So that overdraft product is actually a one-day facility. And because of the way we disperse for customer transactions and do auto strikes to get repaid in the system when the agent gets float through a customer transaction or rebalances, the velocity of that of the of the disbursements to repayments is is exceptional, um, and that and that was our great differentiator is designing a product that is transaction based rather than lump sum based, um, and then the pricing side is really interesting. Rupert is because we're not giving the the full float limit away. If the agent doesn't use the overdraft in the month, we never charge them because it's not costing us anything too. We're not, we're not locking that float to that specific agent. And then when they, when they do use the overdraft, we actually control what type of transaction they use it for. And we always make sure we only fund transactions where they make commission. And we take a portion of their commission as a fee rather than, so, so for an agent, they always make money. They, they're never turning a customer away, which builds up trust. They always make commission. They might make less commission with us than if they were using their own float, but we're a top-up source of float. So if they wanted to invest more and more money in float, they would make more money. But when they do run out, which they always do, at least they're still making money using the HappyCash system. Wow, but just it must be I can imagine it's enormously popular with uh, this profession, if I could call it that, because um, that's uh, <clears throat> in fact I think I'm going to give up my day job and become an agent. It really sounds <laughs> fantastic. But the challenge is the the challenge is these most of these agents are only making sort of twenty five dollars a month in commission. So you know it's it's a very very low margin environment, um, which is also part of the challenge is, you know, our, our agent overdraft product was, was never going to be the, the commercial winner for us. But because it's solving such a specific problem for our partners, it's our, it's our wedge into partnerships, which then allows us to, to launch more, um, more margin-based products to, our, to the different customer segments. It seems like it's a customer acquisition 
methodology and that once you get them in the door, then there, it opens up all kinds of cross-selling opportunities. Is that, is that kind of the way it works? Absolutely. Um, you, you, you know, we, we focus on ensuring that that agent overdraft still has, um, you know, positive unit economics, but sadly, sadly, um, missions are always under pressure. The, the mobile money operators, everyone's looking to try and sort of actively reduce the cost of the channel. Um, so, and because we take a percentage of the commission earned, our, our, our charging is always under a little bit of pressure. So, you you know, the, the, the agent overdraft is our sort of wedge in where we learn and get a sort of digital borrower's profile on the agents, um, which then allows us to offer uh, more standard working capital facilities to them, which they can use for buying goods, buying stock, uh, using it to fund cash ads, et cetera. Wonderful. Let, let's put on a, a broader lens just for a moment and look at the whole landscape. Uh, have you found great variation in the ease of markets to work in, depending on different factors, maybe policies of the central bank or whatever? Are there some countries, you don't need to mention specific ones if I'm going to get you in hot water <laughs> with anybody, but are there some that are much easier than others to work in? Yeah, I mean, every, every country has its nuances. Um, and I mean, and even our credit scoring. So, I mean, our data team over the last four years have analyzed over 12 billion digital transactions across 15 markets. And our, our credit scoring algorithm per product and per partner is, is different. So we, we start, you know, we, we do behaviorally based credit scoring from day one, that there's some rules to the algorithm that have commonality. But each algorithm evolves and is, you know, is fed its own unique data sets and evolves uniquely. So, so it starts with understanding the data and the data we can use to adapt our scoring. Um, I, I think I think the next challenge is is how prioritized we are with our tech, our partners, our channel partners, because we need them to do some tech work. Because it's, you know, we we're just we're We've got a very sophisticated loan management system, our credit scoring applications, et cetera. So that tech is built and in place and as we provide a, a one-stop shop to our partners from a liquidity perspective, but they still need to um, do the user flows on their side because we're not giving them a front end. They, they create the front end. So our biggest challenge to date has been getting some of our partners to prioritize development. Um, and then every central bank is different. Um, and you've got to walk through a process because you sign. We sign up. We, we we our model is completely collaborative. We need a channel partner, which would be an Mpesa, an Airtel Money, or a One Lotus in Pakistan. We then build the product, build the business case, do the technical integrations, and then we bring on a bank partner to be the funding partner um, for the product. So the bank partner then has. Um, balance sheet as well as license and they go through the process which we walk them through of securing any central bank approvals that are required 
Um, and, I, and I think what's quite interesting is for both partners, we provide the one-stop shop solution for these products. So we don't charge the channel partner or the bank any CapEx or OpEx to set up the products and to launch the products. The channel partner typically does the marketing, but we support it. And then we put product managers in place per partner to then manage product performance. So, you know, we, we almost become the, the outsourced product manager for liquidity for everyone. Um, and if you think of a bank, the value to the bank really is, it, you know, and our, our limits, our, our disbursement values are very low. So it's, you know, we're, the overdraft products average disbursement value dollars. The term loan product we've got for agents is uh, $78. So banks can't really do that lending in the traditional sense. So we're suddenly giving them access to a customer that they've never successfully reached before at no cost of product development, no cost of customer acquisition, um, and no cost of product management so or credit scoring. So it's really quite a, a value-added collaboration that we create for the banks as well as the channel partners because they don't have to worry about managing the product and and you know dealing and even dealing with the bank partner because we manage the relationship with the bank to ensure that there's adequate capital to fund the requirements yeah i, I can definitely relate to that andrew because i know i've i uh, constantly ran up against that and think people saying oh no we don't have the broad length uh, bandwidth sorry uh, for this project, we're just too buried working on our uh, our recoveries right now, or we got this other challenge that's eating up all our time and everything. And I'm, I was just tearing my hair out, thinking, "Come on, man, you gotta get, you gotta make the time somehow." But if yeah, if you can outsource that stuff, it's enormously helpful, I'm sure. But it's, um, it's, a, it's a different skill set as well, Rupert. You know, it's. You know, you, you need to understand this space and understand the channel partners' pain points and understand their world to be able to sort of manage manage the product optimization, if 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 that's the right word. Yeah. So did you did you actually at some point have to literally walk in their shoes, like say, look, mate, step aside just for today. I want to see what your life is like. You know, and they just turned over the wheel to you to, or would that be like something would not be legally possible to do? Um, look, I mean, I think, you know, just from the experience we've had as a team and not just the three founders, but the team that we've put in place, there's, there's deep mobile money and digital experience that is recognized by our partners and what we bring. Um, and and we've, we've, we've got knowledge expertise of, of understanding this space, not just at an agent level, but also at a consumer level. Um, so that helps a lot. But we're, we're it, it, I mean, COVID was a challenge. Um, you know, the, we were up against two other providers in Tanzania with M-Pesa looking at agent liquidity. Um, and, and this is, our operating model is very, very intensive to get our partners integrated and alive. Um, but pre-COVID days, the two other competitors were, were international providers. Uh, they would come out to Tanzania every six weeks for management meetings and status meetings um, and let stay, stay for a week and then go back and wonder why nothing's getting done. 
where what we worked at was the developers in M-Pesa and Tanzania work at from 10 till four in the morning. So our team uh, took their laptops um, and sat in the offices at that point in time. And they knew, we knew exactly what work needed to be done that day by whom, and we made sure they did it. Uh, <laughs> now, the, that was, we were the only ones that launched in Mbeza, Tanzania um, because of that. Obviously COVID then made that impossible. And we did find that it took us much longer to get Pakistan live um, because we weren't in place. And we've, we've solved that over the last six weeks, uh, six months with being able to travel again and putting teams in, in country permanently to be able to, to work with our partners from a project management and a, and a, and a delivery perspective. So, you know, it, Tanzania, if COVID hadn't happened, our, our operating model would be different than it is today. Um, but we do recognize the learnings of getting someone as big as Mpeza Tanzania launched um, against competitors, you know, just shows how intensive you have to be and very, very um, focused on getting partners to do, do what's needed. Otherwise it can drag on forever. Yeah, I can imagine. So let's talk a bit about the future. I mean, um, is because some some startups I work with recently, I, I talked to one, you may know it, I think it's called Jibu. It's a water company and mm -hmm. they work via a franchise model. And um, they've they've had, a, I would say, a good degree of success and to the point where it seems like their the governance they worked into and the controls they worked into their franchise model made me think instantly. Wow, this this could work in a number of other uh, technology settings and you know um, sectors. You know, healthcare, whatever. You you've worked in health healthcare. Do you think? Do you think what you've learned through uh through your uh, your work with uh with agent networks and liquidity and everything has that kind of opened your eyes to maybe some some innovations in other sectors that might be equally transformative and powerful if you could figure them out yeah i mean it's it's interesting i, I think there's going to be a, a really interesting conversion of of payments savings and lending in the healthcare space, uh, particularly, in, particularly in emerging markets. So, you know, I mean, I take Hello Doctor, which was my telemedicine business, which we launched 10 years ago. Um, the legislation in South Africa for doctors performing telemedicine, uh, we fought for eight years and never got it changed until COVID arrived. And now the legislation was changed overnight. And and doctors are accepting that certain types of healthcare can be delivered through telemedicine. Um, I think I think so. Telemedicine's just gone through the roof using technology across all all emerging markets. Really, um, I, I think the next gap is going to be how you solve the the payment access gap for healthcare, um, and that's where we will get a conversion of you know, all the great things that telemedicine can do into sort of health savings accounts, uh, micro insurance, and, and even health lending. 
And I think that'll be a very interesting space, particularly in emerging markets over the next couple of years. Um, and, I, you know, I think, I think the digital finance space is just going to continue to evolve and accelerate um, and across many forms. I mean, we're solving basic liquidity at this point in time. There's no reason that uh, financing can't be done more digitally. Um, I mean, you see these neobanks growing at incredible rates in some markets. You know, it's it's going to the digitization of how we do things is not going to stop. Um, so there's going to be a huge amount of innovation. And then I think, you know, our certainly our perspective is, you know, companies can't do everything. So, you know, we're very very focused on saying. Um, you know, really building out our business to be as as transaction-based liquidity solvers as possible, rather than providing consumption-based lending. Um, we want to really focus on on economic productivity for agents, for informal retailers, and we've now just launched with consumers, and doing it in a very sort of purposeful but transaction-focused liquidity space. Um, and, and we don't see, we don't hear and see too many people doing that. Um, so I think we're sort of really building out a bit of a niche, not just from a product perspective, but our understanding of, of different user requirements and allow them to fund transactions at a, instantaneously when they need to. So 11 at night, if you need to do, send, send $5 to your, your mother because she needs it first thing in the morning, and you don't have enough load, we can allow a consumer to do that. Um, if an agent has, has a need to buy stock because the Coca-Cola delivery man's on, on, on his route um, that day, we need to build a solution for that. And then the final one, obviously, being the agent where they need either float or physical cash, we want to be able to solve that in real time. So I think there's a huge amount of um, innovation that's going to come across se sectors, um, you know, the energy, the healthcare, and the banking. And it's, in my mind, it's, there's some maturity in it, but there's still a massive amount of, of, of opportunity still available for, for companies doing the, you know, building out good operations, good products, and solving real customer needs. Yeah, well, it's, it's really exciting. I don't know if you share my view, Andrew, but from my perspective, I'm, you know, having kind of started out in the Peace Corps when, uh, you know, I lived on the ground with really poor people, peasant farmers, men and women, small micro entrepreneurs who just really had a tough life. And there just wasn't a lot available then, speaking of innovations and technology and so forth. Uh, it, was, it was all really, primitive and inchoate, I guess I would say, in its early stages compared to today, where I see so many tools to attack poverty in a systematic way and really make a, a difference. And if you could work out the other issues operationally and financial and so forth, the tools are there. Do you, do you see the same thing? Or is that me just maybe living in a different world than you? No, I totally see the same view, um, Rupert. I mean, I think the tech isn't the problem anymore. The tech is there. 
Um, most people have access to mobile technology and phones. So solving that piece of access has been done. Um, and so I, I think where the biggest amount of work still is required is, is, is in that sort of human trust of what's being offered. Um, and, and we see that a lot is where the tech can so be easily solvable. It's really about how we educate and build up trust within communities so that they, they feel they, they take advantage of what's available to them. Um, and we've still got a huge amount of work to do at that level. But the tech is certainly there and it's, it, it is going to be digital um, and specialized services will become more and more accessible for, for people who previously were excluded. Great. Yeah. So an, another thing I want to pick your mind on, Andrew, because I think the when I as I was listening to you talking about your different partnerships and so forth, I was thinking to myself, wow, this this guy is like a master of partnerships. You know, <laughs> like it seems to me uh, and I see these partnerships are going to be critical still for solving a lot of our problems because, as you said, one company can't do everything, you know, and I think we all need to have some humility uh, and maybe, uh, you know, say, look, we can't do everything and we've got to trust some of our partners um to take this off our hands because they actually are doing it better than us and uh it's good it would take us forever to get where they are forever in development speak you know like years and years <laughs> but what would you say is the key thing you look for in a partner and you say yeah i can work with this guy or this woman and this, we can actually pull this off. What What is the key to it? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. Um, and I mean, we, just from a company DNA perspective, our, our model from day one was we had to work with partners to be able to scale this up. Um, we couldn't do it alone. So, so we had the advantage of coming in as, as a nobody and working with, you know, uh, Finca on the one side and Empezo on the other, where their DNA have been has been built up individually. Um, so, so we almost became the connective tissue or the marriage counselor between partners that didn't really understand each other. Um, but Rupert, it takes unbelievable amount of hard work at all levels, not just the, getting the tech to work, the product to work but to build out relationships with the different partners um, takes time. Um, and you've got to set up the system so that you can have, you know, frank, transparent conversations because um, you can't, you're never going to agree on everything. Um, and you've just got to make sure that the, the, the partnership alignment is always there. And, it, and that's quite fluid because it changes constantly. So you've got to have the, your team's capabilities have to be um, really, really um, on point, empathetic, and understanding 
to be able to sort of manage the different personalities that you have in all partnerships. Um, and it's not easy. There's, but if you can start with having sort of value and commercial alignment between partners, it, it does make it a lot more easy to manage over time, particularly when things go wrong, because they, they always go wrong. You've just got to, but you've got to react um, and be very quick at dealing with it. Otherwise, you know, it just creates long-term problems for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. I wanna. I wanna make sure, Andrew. Our we're, our time is starting to dwindle down, and I'm uh, sure you gotta get on to your next thing as I do. But I don't want to leave anything important unsaid on your part. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you would say uh, our our listeners really need to hear? A little uh, nugget that you know you think would they could carry home to their day jobs and and it might improve their performance remarkably. Uh, no, I mean uh, you know I think we've covered a wide variety of things um, just in general business terms. Um, I mean I think it's it's for people to sort of really under sit and understand and say, do I truly understand? the customer pain point that I'm trying to solve for? Um, and are, we, are, are, you, are they constantly testing that um, and validating that they, they are making a difference? If they are and they you know, have a really focused team and understand what the team needs to do, um, they'll, they'll, they'll set themselves up with a good foundation for creating a good business. Great. Okay. Well, listen, Andrew, Andrew, this has been, uh, I don't want to also pass up the opportunity to say thank you so much to you and your colleagues because you helped improve Finca's performance immeasurably in Africa. I mean, I know this for a fact because I've seen it in action and thank you so much for that and congratulations. Uh, you know, there's honestly, there's not all of us can say that, you know, we came up with something that truly, I hate this term, game changer. I hate it because it's become a bureaucratic uh, watchword or whatever, but that's what you guys have done. That's what you guys have done. And congratulations on that. And I hope you have some more arrows in your quiver still to come. But um Thank you to the audience. And um, uh, I'd just like to say uh, we'd like to hear from you, our listeners, as always. You can find me on Twitter at Rupert Schofield. You can listen to more of my podcasts online at www.sosentpodcast.org. You can also follow my organization, Fink International, on Twitter at Finca. That's capital F-I-N-C-A, or at www.finca.org. If you're an entrepreneur looking to attract investment to an early stage social enterprise, I encourage you to also visit www.fincaventures.com. Andrew, what's the best way for people to follow you and Kunda Digital online? Yeah, it's, it would really be on our website, kunda.com. Rupert, and then obviously on LinkedIn as well. We've got a quite an active LinkedIn page. 
Okay, well, thanks a lot, mate. And I look forward, you know, I'm going to start traveling again, although my uh, my family and some colleagues thinks I've lost my mind, but I can't wait to get back to Africa. And let's hope our paths cross again uh, in Africa or somewhere. And uh, good luck to you, mate. Thanks. Thanks very much, Rupert. It's been a pleasure chatting with you.